Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had trouble staying awake? Now, I myself, I'm lucky to say that I've never had a sleep control problem. I'm asleep when I want to be, and I'm awake when I need to be. See, sleep has never been a problem. Uh, Some people are jealous of that. About the only time I can remember was in the ninth grade, Algebra 2, right after lunch. Right? You know, I, I had a full stomach, and I'm facing these dry, dry formulas on the chalkboard and the droning of the teacher, and that combined to leave me with my head rather precariously poised on one arm. And there is a wet spot or two on my homework now, you know, when I, when I finally snapped up and paid attention again. So sleep. 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 My purpose this evening is to lull you into the arms of Morpheus, to let the soup in your bellies, the familiar comfort of the pews, and the sonorous pacing of my gentle voice (laughs) reduce you to a state of somnambulance and stupor. See, I want to put you into the place of Peter, James, and John, who should have been heroically standing by the master during his most distressing moments leading up to the cross, but they just couldn't do it. They, they failed. In our passion reading for this evening, Jesus is about to embark on the most harrowing hours of his life. He has been perfectly obedient to the will of the Father up to this point. But humanly, the next part is going to be rough. So he brings his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, something he'd done many, many a time. And taking his inner circle of Peter, James, and John with him, he separates himself from the rest to pray. And he even separates himself from them, leaving the trio with these words, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. But his followers, unfortunately, were afflicted with sleepy eye syndrome. That's a a malady that I just made up. But the soon-to-be apostles definitely show all of the symptoms of it. So when Jesus returns from rending his soul before the Father, he finds his charges fast asleep. You know, these guys, these rugged fishermen who were used to holding all-nighters, hauling full nets from the Sea of Galilee. These guys, they just couldn't muster the energy to stay up for even a little while. Here they were, blissfully sawing logs, sprawled on the soft turf of the garden. Jesus greets them by saying, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's my life verse, by the way, the verse given to me at my confirmation. I'm not quite sure what pastor had in mind when he gave it to me. But that 
verse definitely points to the frailty of humanity because we're limited in strength and endurance and we're subject to exhaustion, especially when in stressful situations. Keep that in mind. It's been a busy, exciting, scary, confusing roller coaster of a week for the disciples. It's no wonder that they had sleepy eyes, you know, just needing to see the inside of their eyelids for a while. You've all been there. And, and it's compounded. Who knows if, if Peter, James, and John had, had gotten any shut-eye at all since he had heard the sermon that Jesus had spoken to them about staying awake and watching for the last day. That's... In Mark 13, starts at verse 32. It's a very challenging image to take in, and considering the circumstances, everything they've been told, everything they'd seen, they might have even taken it literally and just were trying to stay awake. And then you add to that, you know, what could be more sleep-inducing than watching another person pray? You know, as far as their own praying went, well... Haven't you ever nodded off during your own prayers? I have. So they reclined on the soft grass in the garden. The cool night air was perfect for sleeping, and a nap was inevitable. Yeah, it was. And it was a sinful thing that they did, because they didn't do what Jesus told them and asked them to do. But let's be honest, we wouldn't have been able to either if we'd been in their shoes. I'm sure of that. So we shouldn't be so hard on them. The events that happened had to happen the way they happened. And what happened to the disciples should teach us to identify sinful humans, even believers, as a bunch of sleepyheads whose willing spirit cannot overcome the weakness of their flesh. More importantly, this scene identifies Jesus as the Lord of Israel, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, whose eyes were set only on God's will. When it came time for all righteousness to be fulfilled and for all the sin of the world to be paid for, it all comes down to Jesus. Jesus only Jesus. He had to be the only one awake to persevere through the home stretch of his active obedience, to move on to suffer the pangs of hell in his passive obedience, and then to sleep the sleep of death in the tomb, all for us and for our salvation. Tonight's Passion reading places before our eyes the depths of woe Jesus would suffer for us. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, sorrowful and troubled, almost to the point of his sacred heart failing right then and there. The weight of the world's sins pressed down mightily upon him. He fell upon his face in weakness and trembling, begging, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you remove This cup from me. The cup Jesus spoke of was the cup 
of his father's wrath against all the sin of the world. God's wrath is his unmitigated anger, a furious outpouring of condemnation, virtually the fires and torments of hell. Jesus didn't want to drink that cup. Perfect, sinless, holy Jesus, whose will was truly perfect, prayed that he would not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Knowing that it was possible for his father to change things, he implored, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. This shows us that death and hell are not good or desirable for humans. Death, decay, and eternal suffering were not God's plan for humanity. Instead, they're the consequences of Adam's fall, that fall that we're all entangled in. All except for Jesus. He was sinless. He didn't merit death. He alone didn't deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. So his prayer certainly wasn't cowardly or faithless. It was the language of faith. Faith in the one for whom all things are possible. Now, I did leave out some essential words from Jesus' prayers. He never did stop with, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Every time he continued, Yet not what I will, but what you will. And again he prayed. And again he surrendered himself to the will of God three times saying these same phrases, these same words. And then the father answered his son's prayer. You do know that not all answers to prayer are yes. In this case, while it was possible for the father to remove the cup, The Father's expressed will was for Jesus to suffer, to spare you and me. The Father answered Jesus' prayer by giving his Son the strength to accept his his good and gracious will. And so the Son willingly went into captivity when Jesus showed up to betray him. And mere moments later, Jesus said that all this was done to let the scriptures be fulfilled. And surely, one of the scriptures he must have had in mind was Isaiah 53. There, the suffering servant of the Lord is said to be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of God's people, even though he had done no violence and no lies were upon his lips. Why was all this punishment laid upon this innocent victim? Isaiah writes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It's Isaiah 53.10. The Father willed 
to crush his own son and make him an offering for the guilt of our sin. Those of us who are parents can't even begin to wrap our minds around how the Father could love us sinners enough to pour out his wrath against his own son. It torments us to see our own children suffer. How could God kill his own son? We must receive this news with awe and thanksgiving because the Lord has done this to save us from our sins. We simply trust God's word, which says that his good and gracious will was to love us by sacrificing his only begotten son. But the father eternally loves his son. And Isaiah's prophecy did not stop with the death of Jesus. It pointed forward to Easter. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, gazed upon them with living eyes and said, peace be with you. When he had said this, their eyes looked upon his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That's John chapter 20. His nail-marked hands speak of God's goodwill toward you and all sinners. Peace be with you. The war is over. His forgiveness has turned you and me from combatants to friends and even more to sisters and brothers. The scars on his hands reveal the good and gracious will of God that an eternal peace between God and man had been made by him who was delivered up for our sins and was raised for our justification. Through all this, Jesus kept his eyes firmly on his Father's will. And by this, fulfilled what he had told his disciples in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The good and gracious will of God is that you set your eyes on the Son, believe in Him, and have eternal life as a free gift. With that good news in mind, you can fall asleep in peace each night, awake to serve Him every morning. And when your eyes eventually go to sleep in death, be confident that they will awaken to everlasting life in the resurrection. Amen.